welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Almost 21 million Americans struggle with addiction, yet only 10% receive treatment today. One reason? For some, treatment's just inaccessible. Today, we'll introduce two innovative programs that are changing that by taking treatment to the streets to save lives. We begin with Dr. Jesse Gaeta, the Chief Medical Officer of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program in Boston, Massachusetts. I met Dr. Gaeta three years ago when we learned about a program she implemented called SPOT. As we begin, Dr. Gaeta talks about how the Care Zone van evolved. It started with some some brainstorming sessions with um, the people who lead the Craft Center for Community Health and 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 our program. Um, we basically were trying to figure out how to make it easier to get one medication in particular, buprenorphine, which were just the most agile in being able to offer. How to get that medication um, to make it more accessible to people currently not. Accessing it, accessing it, more accessible even than buying heroin or fentanyl on the street. We just started to think about how to break down every barrier we could think of. Um, what would it take to do that? And 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 specifically to reach a group of people like really not being well reached yet. Um, so that's how it happened. It was just a series of kind of brainstorming sessions with a, with a group of people. So. This program is actually based upon a premise that people will do almost anything to avoid becoming dope sick. If you make the medication for addiction more readily available than dope, many will choose treatment over drugs. In this case, when um, the people that we're trying to serve are, um, are experiencing homelessness, may or may not even be using um, a shelter, um, maybe sleeping outside. Um, the question was really how to tailor tailor a program um, specifically to them. Dr. Gaeta shares how the Care Zone teams were formed and how the neighborhoods they would serve were selected. So first, with this project, we wanted to use any and all data that might help inform um, the design of the program. And the first question is like, who is it that we're not reaching? who is having um, the most downstream and most potentially fatal effect of disease, and that is overdose. So we, um, you know, this project funded and really supported in so many ways by the Craft Center for Community Health um, has as its two service providers, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, um, which, and we do the clinical side, as well as the Boston Public Health Commission's AHOPE program. And AHOPE is part of the commission here that um, provides um, really harm reduction services to, um, to lots of people who use drugs around Boston. So they are a key partner in this work. And the team that we assembled is a combination of both of our, um, both of our programs. So 
um, wavered clinicians, wavered meaning um, able to prescribe this particular medication, buprenorphine. Um, in fact, we're talking about the clinics on the van are primary care docs who have addiction medicine expertise as well. And, um, and the AHO program um, staffs the van with um, a number of street outreach workers, public health advocates who um, have existing relationship already with a lot of the networks of injection drug users who are, who are trying to engage. So that's how we assembled the team. But in terms of where we go, um, how we chose the neighborhoods and the streets and the locations, the data that we were able to obtain to help us is from the Boston Public Health Commission. They have been able to to um, look at data from EMS, from our um, emergency medical transport, our ambulance system, to say where overdoses have been um, occurring in which 911 is called. Now, we know that's just a subset of all overdoses because not every overdose results in a 911 call, but when it does, um, we have data about whether that overdose happened in a, in a home, in a street, in a bathroom, um, and exactly where and who that person was. And so armed with that data, we were able to look at like just geospatially where overdoses are kind of clustered geographically in, in, in greater Boston and say, here are the neighborhoods where there are lots of overdoses and even street overdoses happening the most. And then the next step for us was to go to those neighborhoods and say, who would be willing to have a program like this um, kind of piloted in, in this neighborhood. And that's actually a really important part of this process of figuring out where to build mobile programming is, is where will it be accepted? <laughs> so the first question is, where is there a need? And then the next question is, where will it be accepted? And so we spent a lot of time um, in neighborhoods talking with neighborhood associations and business associations and other healthcare providers, social service providers, figuring out the best place to park and whether there was an appetite to support this in a, in a neighborhood. You know, you need some level of buy-in in the neighborhood that you're going into that um, that this is important, it's needed, and also to help shape what the service looks like a little um, from the people in that neighborhood. So two of the neighborhoods of, that we go to are part of the downtown, you know, most dense part of Boston, um, downtown Boston. And and the other two are um, not quite downtown, but sort of around the outskirts a bit. Um, but, you know, some of these areas that we go to are um, have a lot of commercial business um, being downtown. So I think one key question about this was how to, how to roll out a program like this in a way that wouldn't disrupt people's businesses, for example. That's something that we're, we're just thoughtful and, and mindful about. How often do they go into the neighborhoods? So the van goes to each of these four neighborhoods uh, once a week. Um, and we are predictable in, in our schedule in coming into the neighborhood. So we're there a certain day of the week, certain hours, and people know and have come to know when we'll be there and to kind of rely on us. But the neat thing about being on wheels and having you know, this ability to be mobile is that we can respond to needs that come up um, you know, ad hoc. So for instance, with a cluster of new overdoses in a different place, we could um, kind of mobilize quickly and send you know, a, what's become a, a pretty experienced team 
into neighborhoods to try to first and very, you know, foremost, um, decrease risk of overdose death by distributing naloxone and performing and, and providing a syringe exchange, syringe access and syringe disposal, as well as connection to the clinician to consider, um, you know, ultimately addiction treatment um, or take care of other concerns, medical concerns a person might have uh, related to their injection drug use, like skin and soft tissue infections, um, et cetera, or related to any health concern that they have. So can you tell us how a typical visit of the van to a neighborhood goes? Sure. So we we pull up in our parking space and um, we typically start off by doing some street outreach by foot first in the neighborhood. So we'll take all a bunch of gear with us and we'll we'll head off in teams of two. We always we have partnerships and street outreach. Um, and we may scour the neighborhood um, to go a little bit more deeply into alleyways and places where the van's not going to fit. Um, and, you know, for the first half hour or so, we tend to be doing street outreach to kind of get the lay of the land and make sure people know that we're there. Um, and then we come back to the van anytime someone meets a person who needs a service um, for which the van would be helpful because we have an entire um, beautifully outfitted medical clinic on the van. Um, and, and also we, um, and then we also have scheduled appointments at some point when, when we've been coming back regularly, there are people we, that we know we'll see once we set up times to meet them. Um, and we'll spend likely the next several hours on the van. And part of what we do in terms of really working hard to engage people and, provide, um, you know, commitment and non-judgmental care. A lot of what we're doing initially is handing out sandwiches and water um, and at a minimum, Narcan, making sure people have Narcan. It's kind of a great conversation starter. Even someone who may not be using opioids at the time um, knows people who have overdosed or have witnessed overdoses and and want to have this this medication on them. So, that's kind of a, a low-hanging fruit and a really important public health intervention. The moment a person is interested in trying um, a medication for addiction treatment, whether that's buprenorphine, which we can do right then and there on the van, or naltrexone, which we also can do right then and there on the van, or methadone, for which we'd have to send someone um, to a nearby clinic. But at the point where they want to try any of those things, that we can do it as quickly as possible. And by quickly, I mean within an hour, we can start treatment. Wow. And we can do that because we're right there. We can sort of do the whole intake that we need to uh, confirm a diagnosis, think about whether this medication is appropriate for someone, think about medication interactions, et cetera. We can perform toxicology testing, for example, which is something we tend to do fairly routinely with prescription refills. Um, we can do those right then and there with an oral swab that takes a few minutes. Um, we can, there's, you know, along with prescribing medications for addiction treatment comes some um, sort of regulatory requirements uh, like checking our state's prescription monitoring program, which we can do right then and there on the van with a kind of sophisticated uh, Wi-Fi system outfitted with computers, printers, label printers, everything that we need to draw blood, obtain an, an oral test, uh, look at the electronic health record, 
um, write an electronic prescription, print out anything we need to print out. So it's it's really neat to have a clinic on wheels that we're bringing into a neighborhood where there's high need um, and to be, able, to be able to say someone on the street who often has struggled to interact with a traditional brick and mortar medical clinic um, to say, if you're interested, let's try it right now. Let's do it. Let's do it together right now. I asked the doctor if she had any concerns about diversion of the drugs they prescribe. I do worry about diversion. I want to know that the medication that I'm prescribing is going to the patient that I intended to go to. Um, and so I do what I can to monitor for that. Um, probably one of the, the most effective ways to monitor for that is, is via toxicology. So with the swabs that I was mentioning before, what I'm really looking for is whether or not the medication that I'm prescribing is present. That's first and foremost. And then I want to know if it's working. In other words, if people are able to avoid other opioids. Um, so uh, probably the best way that we monitor for diversion is, is via toxicology. The CareZone program has been up and running now for 18 months and has had around 5,315 street outreach encounters since the program's inception. Dr. Gaeta describes the van further and speaks to the cost of the project. And we had it outfitted, the interior, into two rooms. One of them is a clinic exam room that has the ability to be private. Um, and the other one is sort of like a... Um, uh, like a waiting room, I guess, so to speak. And that's the place where a lot of the harm reduction services happen, syringe exchange, naloxone distribution, um, and engagement. Um, so that's that's the biggest upfront cost. The rest of the cost of the program really is, is staffing. Um, and so because we have typically four, sometimes even six people on each van run, um, you know, the rest of the cost really is, is the staffing supplies, are um, are another line item, and the the supply the most costly supply here obviously is Narcan, and so these are the folks we're serving are often kind of especially initially unable to fill prescriptions at a pharmacy. That's just not a realistic plan for them. So we want to make sure getting Narcan into their hands, even if they can't use the pharmacy, since they can prescribe it. All in all, in a year, we have a probably a budget that's somewhere around 200000 and that's for a program that has been running um, half-time um, in, in the first iteration. I think right now the things I'm thinking about in terms of the future for this program are how to begin to integrate even more services onto the van. So I think ideally in the near future, in addition to you know, addiction medicine and primary care, we would want to be able to integrate hepatitis C treatment, and HIV treatment, because these are two common infections in the population that we're serving right on the van to try to make it, again, just as acceptable, accessible as possible. Um, and then right now, I'm really thinking about how to best promote um, continuity of engagement and retention in care um, in such a um, transient and high-risk population. Um, I shall I should tell you that we're always hoping to bridge people to more standard brick and mortar uh, clinics when they're ready. Um, and that's worked for some people, but not for everyone. There's some people, a small group who still need this very highly flexible um, model in order to be uh, retained in care. One of the things that's been most um, amazing about this project for for us has been 
um, this issue, this, this ability to um, bring together um, just amazing provider organizations in one project and to integrate our services, in this case, harm reduction services and medications for addiction treatment. Um, so I, I would suggest to communities, what are the strengths that you have in, um, in uh, addressing this epidemic and how might you cross, uh, sort of contaminate, bring together some of your strongest service providers and make their services even more flexible? What would that look like in your community? My last thought is this, that just as a primary care doc and, and addiction medicine specialist, that I am learning so much on this van that I never understood in seeing patients in an office about their lives, about what addiction looks like on a street level. I'm learning so much about the patterns of drug use on the streets where um, in this city. Um, I'm learning about things like, um, you know, what the, the, the dealing infrastructure looks like in the neighborhoods. Um, I'm meeting on the street level uh, police officers who are just grappling with how to manage various things related to the epidemic. I'm learning so much by getting out of an office and trying to figure out how to help people um, starting right where they are. Last week, a article in The Atlantic caught my attention. It was titled, A Radical Way to Stop Heroin Overdoses. And it went on to outline uh, first in our nation. And it was in New Jersey, where they're allowing paramedics to initiate buprenorphine for those that have overdosed. Here today to talk about that program is the health commissioner for New Jersey, Dr. Sharif Elnahal. So, doctor, welcome. Thanks for having me, Greg. Let's start off by telling us what inspired you to try such a new and radical approach to this problem. So, Greg, this was about uh, responding and listening to the paramedics and first responders in the field. Uh, we heard story after story from paramedics about uh, them arriving to a scene, reviving someone with naloxone, uh, which is the antidote for an opioid overdose, and then literally minutes later seeing the same folks run out of ambulances because they're in withdrawal and looking to use again. And tragically, uh, these folks tell us that often three, four times a night even, they're visiting the same individual in the same household or the same street corner or the same place uh, with the, another opioid overdose, and they just repeat the same cycle. And so we really thought we had to think outside the box because too many people were refusing transport after an overdose revival to the emergency room. And that's such a critical opportunity right after an overdose to encourage someone to move into treatment to get them out of the addiction cycle, the vicious cycle that folks go through uh, using overdosing and then using again uh, in their addiction. Uh, one idea that came out was equipping the same paramedics with a medication called buprenorphine. This is a medication that has a mechanism of action that's interesting. It essentially binds to the same receptors as opioids do, but it doesn't completely activate the receptor. It just binds to it and it does two things. Number one, it prevents withdrawal severely. Uh, it prevents severe withdrawal, mitigates the symptoms. And number two, it doesn't allow for further opioid use to actually have as much of an effect on someone. So you won't actually get high if your receptors are covered with buprenorphine 
uh, if you try to use again. And so that's a really useful tool to help manage withdrawal and hopefully convince more folks right after an Aloxone save to have a clear mind and try to come back to the emergency room to begin treatment. And the majority of our paramedics and our council voted yes to do this, and we took a bold step as the first state in the nation to allow them to do so. It's interesting, though. There are so many hurdles to providing buprenorphine this way. So how did you overcome those? Number one, you know, doctors can't just automatically prescribe for that. Um, they have to get waiver, right? And, and number two, um, extending it out to paramedics, is, is that's a big, bold step. Uh, agreed. And so we did a couple of things to make sure we were in compliance with federal law and state law. The first thing is that the actual order for the buprenorphine has to come from a physician in central medical command, which is usually in an emergency room in a hospital. And so the paramedic can administer Narcan themselves to a patient to revive them. Uh, but then if the paramedic thinks that the patient can benefit from uh, buprenorphine, they need to present the case to the doctor in the emergency room virtually and get the final order from a physician. And that physician has the federal certification. It has to be data wavered, so to speak, to be able to do it. So we're in compliance with the federal rules on that, but we're also making sure that someone who's trained and is licensed to give the medication, it signs off for it. It is a, technically an off-label use uh, because buprenorphine is typically used either for addiction treatment or pain control. But uh, you don't actually need any sort of special certification to use it for pain control uh, or a different off-label use. If we were to start definitive treatment for addiction, that's when it would kick in. However, we wanted to be safe about it, and we made sure this system was in place for that central command provider to give the final sign-off. So your physician that's overseeing this, this all happens real time. I mean, the paramedic is in the field. They're back at the, at the office at the ER, um, and they consult on every patient before they're prescribed. Is that how that works? It is. Uh, for the buprenorphine, you have to get a specific doctor's order from Central Command. There seems to be nationally some real challenges with finding enough prescribers nationwide. Do you have that problem in New Jersey? New Jersey is working really hard to get more of those providers in place. Uh, and we do have, on average, uh, per capita, a bit more than most other states, but still below what we need. And so we are uh, taking unprecedented efforts as a state to not only get more people wavered to prescribe it, so getting the federal certification and training, uh, but also to provide support at the point of care uh, through what we call centers of excellence, the universities that have addiction departments that have the subject matter experts in place to help uh, a primary care physician or a family physician in the field uh, prescribe the medication right. Someone to literally sit side by side with a physician as they're writing their first prescription really, really helps. And so uh, we're taking a lot of efforts to do that. That's out of the Department of Human Services and the Medicaid program. So how long did it take to get this program up and rolling? We worked with our Council of Paramedics, what we call our mobile medical ICU providers. Uh, again, these are folks that respond to the scene of uh, really serious health risks, whether it's a bad car accident or an opioid overdose. 
And we have a council of folks representative across the state that talk to us about issues that they're seeing. And we heard about this enough to put it up for a vote to allow them to prescribe buprenorphine. And the vote was overwhelmingly in favor of us doing it. So we already have uh, several hospitals that are beginning to do this. Uh, the in real innovators here that have begun to do this already are Cooper University Hospital. They've really pushed the boundaries in um, responsible and meaningful ways on progressive medication-assisted treatment and addiction treatment. And uh, we're going to be uh, engaging a couple of university groups to help us evaluate the program and how effective it is. So all in all, what was the timeline to get this up and rolling? We uh, had a couple of months of engagement with the paramedic groups. We put it up for a vote, and I signed the certification right after that. So really quickly. So within a quarter, you had it up and rolling. Yes. So for now, we have a program that uh, allows the hospitals and the medical command to bill a patient's insurance. So if the patient has commercial insurance, like a Blue Cross, for example, or an Aetna, that insurance will be billed for the medication. Uh, if they have Medicaid, it will also be billed and covered by Medicaid in New Jersey. And if they don't have insurance, there are provisions uh, to cover it with our charity care program uh, as a charity care claim. We're trying in as many cases as possible to prevent the patient from being billed. And in reality, what that means is that uh, hospital programs, paramedic programs would eat the cost for patients who get it without insurance until they can get uh, claims for charity care. But we're really trying to minimize the cost, the out-of-pocket cost to the patients themselves and ideally keep that as close to zero as possible. For other communities that would consider bringing this program on, doctor, what, what would be your advice? My advice would be to, to come along with us in the journey. Uh, here's the logic in doing so. It wasn't just the paramedics that uh, were really... Uh, clamoring for this and hoping that we would do so. That was a major part of it because they're right there uh, at ground zero in the field seeing this. It was also the evidence. So we have evidence, for example, that buprenorphine is bought and sold on the black market, not because people are using it to get high, but because people are using it uh, when they run out of opioids, heroin, whatever it is, and they want to avoid withdrawal symptoms. So about 84% of people in one study used it for that purpose on the black market, not to get high. Yeah, not to get dope sick. Exactly. And so uh, we found that if people are using this anyway in our communities for that purpose, why not do it in a medically controlled setting? And why not do it in a setting where you can capture that patient in and say, hey, it, may, it would be really helpful for you uh, and your loved ones if you came to the emergency room, heard us out, and uh, have gone into treatment. And uh, we think that's really important. The other piece uh, is that the most important predictor of someone proceeding into treatment and receiving treatment successfully for addiction is if they've had buprenorphine at any time in the past. And that includes only one dose and it includes buprenorphine that may have been bought uh, or obtained on the black market. So again, we are increasing the chance of literally every person that we treat with buprenorphine in the field, that they will eventually, if not at that time, eventually proceed into treatment. Doctor, as you look down the road, what would you like to see as this program evolves? 
We hope to see uh, an evaluation process that yields good evidence to say, number one, we are encouraging and more successful at bringing more people uh, transported into the emergency room. Number two, we're seeing more people start on definitive medication-assisted treatment, induction of treatment with buprenorphine, methadone, or another regimen. And that importantly, we are seeing less of the situation that I described at the beginning of this interview where paramedics were visiting the same person over and over again to revive them. That's a health risk to the patient. Uh, it's an emotional, it takes an emotional toll uh, and a physical toll on the paramedics, and it's also a healthcare cost and resource issue. We want these paramedics to be available for the next person who uh, overdoses uh, and be able to be there on time and at the ready to revive them and bring them into treatment in addition to all of the other emergencies they respond to. Commissioner Ellen Hall offers a few final thoughts. In an epidemic that is that took 3,000 lives in our state last year, we not only have to be good implementers of existing ideas and older ideas, we have to innovate. We have to think outside the box in a responsible way and really listen to the folks in the field responding uh, when overdoses happen. And I think we've done that with this program. We will hopefully see more evidence come out of it. And I appreciate that folks like you, Greg, are spreading the word on innovative approaches to the epidemic. It should be noted that nationally, only about 5% of all doctors have a license to prescribe Suboxone. In 2011, 43% of all U.S. counties didn't even have anyone that could prescribe Suboxone. Contrast that with France, who in 1995 made it so any doctor could prescribe buprenorphine without special licensing or training. And within four years, overdose deaths declined by 79%. Some have suggested it's time to relax our tight regulations on prescribing Suboxone. In the meantime, programs like the Care Zone in Boston and the buprenorphine-carrying paramedics in New Jersey offer hope of something that could turn the tide for other communities throughout our country. My thanks to our guests today, Dr. Jesse Gaeta, who's the Chief Medical Officer of the Boston Health for the Homeless Program, and Dr. Sharif Ellenhall, the Commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Health. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. To stay up to date on the latest Cover 2 podcasts and community events, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's Cover, the numeral 2, and Resources. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.